Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series on time, which is an important subject, I would imagine, to all of us. How does God see time? How did Jesus relate to the subject of time? And so today's uh, sermon is titled The Quick Fix. So we're going to start by talking about a few quick fixes, some that don't always turn out like we think. Uh, we have some good friends in our neighborhood. I'll call them Steve and Amy. And uh, it was uh, a few days before Christmas, and Steve had not bought anything for Amy yet. Has anyone ever been in that boat? Okay, no, it's just me. Great. So Steve was kind of in a panic. It was a couple days before. It's late at night. He's been traveling all week. And so he gets on uh, a familiar site to most of us, Amazon Now, and he starts looking around at what are some gifts that he can get for his beloved wife, right? Like, so let's just close the gap here, make this a thoughtful moment as we possibly can, and let's get something fast. So he looks on Amazon now. It's late. He's tired. He's been out all week. So picture, right, like you're sitting on your couch with your laptop in front of you, or maybe you're on your phone, and you're just trying to find something, right? So he finds a few things that he thinks Amy will like. He orders them. He clicks purchase. Boop, boop, they're on their way, right? Your delivery guy will be here in an hour. It's late at night. He's tired. Steve falls asleep on the couch. It's late at night. Amy's asleep in their bedroom. Amazon now. Guess who gets up to go get the package? Amy. She walks to the front door, totally bewildered, like, what is going on? The Amazon now guy says, here's your package. Thanks. See you later. She opens it up and sees these gifts that are for her, and then she looks and she sees Steve asleep on the couch, just sawing logs, like, what in the world has just happened? Sometimes our quick fixes don't turn out like we think they should. Sometimes when we think we're going to address a problem quickly, we actually miss something greater there. For Steve, he probably could have planned his time a little better to go do some intentional, thoughtful giving for his wife. We all face situations where the quick fix seems like it's going to be the easiest way through a challenge, a temptation, a problem, a situation we're facing. We live in a day when quick fixes drive so much of our behavior and our economy, do they not? If you're hungry, what's your quick fix? DoorDash, any of these delivery services. If you need a ride somewhere, what's your quick fix? Uber, Lyft. The quick fix is such a part of the way that our world is wired. And Jesus was no stranger to this. He probably didn't have DoorDash. But he was not unfamiliar with this idea of facing a temptation and trying to deal with it in a less than substantive way. Now, the point of this sermon and this illustration is not to diminish quick fixes. Like, you want to go use DoorDash, like, please be my guest. I'm not against that. I think quick fixes, though, are a poor substitute at times for actually doing some of the work that God wants us to do in those moments. Sometimes quick fixes lead us to actually miss opportunities that God has right in front of us for understanding something deeper, for being challenged in a way that maybe we're not anticipating. And today's text, I'd never thought about it this way until I looked at it this week. Today's text is about quick fixes. Every one of the temptations that the enemy puts in front of Jesus is a temptation to do something quickly, to do something right now, get it done, order it, fix it, make it happen. And Jesus responds so beautifully to that challenge. And I think we have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn from how he approached that. So there's an outline in your bulletin. I would encourage you to turn there as we uh, get into the body of the text today. The thesis for this morning is actually very simple. It's just three words, pause, then trust pause, and then trust. Can you say that with me? Pause, 
then trust. That is the point of what we're learning about today. Three headings in your bulletin to kind of illustrate this. We're going to talk about context, like the context for Jesus' situation. How can we better study our context? We're going to talk about the quick fixes that Jesus faces in the temptation. And then we're going to just spend some time reflecting on what's the season of life that I'm in, that you're in, that we are considering right now together. So context, let's start with this. Uh, good Bible study always begins with context. If you want to just do a really good work whenever you're looking at a passage of scripture, it's always so helpful, I think, to read what happened before that passage in the scriptures and read what happened after. When we talk about Bible study that uses context, that's what we're talking about. So in today's passage, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn there, go right ahead. We will be in Luke 4, but to do the good work of context, we're going to look at earlier portions of Luke's Gospel. Luke uh, wrote a very interesting Gospel. He was a physician by trade, and he was writing to an audience of people that would have held him in high regard if his account passed the muster. What do I mean by that? I mean, Luke gives more specific details than any of the other gospel writers about this happened over here, and then Jesus went over here, and then we saw this dialogue here. His opening to the introduction of Jesus in Luke chapters 1 and 2 is more detailed specifically around people and places and instances that really none of the other gospels record. Before we even meet Jesus, we meet Jesus' mom, we meet Jesus' aunt, We meet angels who come and speak to these two women in different ways. There are prophets and prophetesses. There are even a few songs thrown in for good measure. So if you're a fan of musicals, Luke 1 and 2 is for you. The reason Luke included all of this was because his audience would have been looking for details to stack up. Wait, this doesn't make sense with this over here. If you're very linear, Luke is your guy. So in Luke 1 and 2, he is drawing us very carefully, very intentionally into this realization that a moment in history is upon us when Jesus is born. That's what he's trying to arrive at with Luke 1 and 2. This is a big deal, so pay attention. And then in Luke 3, once he's got his audience's attention, he goes into one of the most powerful moments in all of scriptures. I actually, I have a hard time reading this and not getting goosebumps every single time. May it always be so. I'm going to read Luke 3, 21 and 22. I invite you to turn there with me. This is one of several accounts of the baptism of Jesus. This is a powerful moment in the context of Jesus' life. Listen to this. John, Jesus' cousin, we've met him a moment ago. He is baptizing people in the Jordan River. So it says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, baptized by his cousin John, and they were praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. I'll say that again because I think that is one of the most powerful statements in all of scriptures. Hear this voice spoken over you, church, over our life together. You are my son, you are my daughter, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Why is this such an important moment? It is a critical moment in the life of Jesus Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Why is it so important? It's the moment when Jesus gets the gift that every one of us longs for. Every person longs for the gift of who am I? The gift of identity, the gift of security, of being able to put your feet down on what you know is true. And it is given to Jesus in this moment. You are my son, true. You are beloved, true. We need this. Every human being 
has to spend a portion of our life, maybe not, and maybe sometimes all of our lives, wrestling with a sense of who am I? How many different identities did we all try on in middle school and high school? Like, that's kind of the point of middle school and high school, right? Like, try on different things. For me, it was basketball. I thought someone with my height and my athletic abilities would be great at basketball. Middle school taught me otherwise. It taught me that God put me on earth to not play basketball. I'm too short. I'm not fast. It doesn't work for me. But that was an identity I tried on. The Houston Rockets had just won back-to-back world championships. I was very excited about that. So I thought, I'm going to go play basketball. I had the jerseys. I had the gear. I had all of it. Did that identity stick for me? No. We all have a version of that. Maybe it wasn't basketball for you. Maybe it was being scholarly. Maybe it was being seen as successful. Maybe you really got into dance or you got into an instrument, and over time you just went, this is not who I am. Human beings are always destined to kind of go toward a sense of identity, to go toward a sense of purpose, and we keep toiling, we keep toiling, we keep toiling, and the one thing that will satisfy us is the very thing that was spoken to Jesus Christ. That's the one thing we long to hear again and again. You are my beloved. You are my son. You are my daughter. You belong to me. We long to hear that because that identity will actually be secure for us. Jesus hears these words. He receives this blessing from the Father. It literally descends upon him like a dove. I love that image. And after this is when Jesus is called into his time of trial. 40 days of solitude, 40 days of fasting, 40 days of temptations. It is no accident, church, that that is exactly what had to happen before Jesus was tempted. It is no accident that Jesus receives this amazing gift. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Eye of the tiger is just blaring around him. And he goes into the wilderness for the greatest challenge that he's faced in his life. And I'd like to imagine that throughout Jesus' life, the context kept coming into play for him. What do I mean by that? Draw a box in your outline or in your notebook. Just draw a box, any size Draw a box. Jesus' baptism was a turning point event in his life. And I think we all know what I mean when I say a turning point event. It could be something that you had longed for and it finally arrived the first day you started your new job. Turning point event. You can write that in the box. The birth of a child. Turning point event in your life. You can measure everything before and kind of everything after as it relates to that one event. Sometimes our turning point events are things we don't want. It's when someone you love passed away. It's when you lost a job, or you lost a child, or you lost a spouse. In family systems theory, these are called nodal events, because there's so many things that connect back into that event, like the nodes in our brains. There are things that run through that event, and we have many of them throughout our lives. And we can never fully separate ourselves from the power of that event. My argument is that this baptism, this moment, was one of Jesus' key events where everything else he did in his life was in light of the Father saying to him in that moment, you're my beloved. We have similar events, church, and my challenge to us this week, our homework this week, is to go and fill in that box. What was a turning point event for you? for good or for ill, where you can kind of look back and go, yeah, there were a few things that were happening before that, and then the thing happened, whatever you want to write in the box, and then after that, it was like I was a different person, or I had a different outlook on life, or something fundamental changed for me. I was 22 years old, and I was finishing up college, and I was sure, I didn't have a lot of certainty about a lot of future in my life, but I was pretty sure that I was supposed to go to law school, 
I come from a family of lawyers. I was an English major, pre-unemployment. I did not have any options, I thought, except going to law school. So 22, I go and take the LSAT, the law school admissions test. Anybody else taking this exam? It leaves scars, trust me. And I took it, and I really admire the test, actually, because I think it does what it claims to do, which is to tell you whether you're going to make it in law school or not. So I took the test, and I just knew in the moment, like, this is not good. <laughs> like, this is not going to go well for me. I came home. I told my roommates about it, and they're like, hey, here's, here's an adult beverage. Like, let's deal with it together. I remember uh, going back to uh, the law school library. I lived right near a law school, actually, at the time. And just kind of sitting down to study and looking around and kind of going, like, I don't think I belong here. Like, it was a very demoralizing time for me. I got back the results from the LSAT. Lo and behold, I bombed. Like, bombed a big time. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't have a plan B. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do right now. So for me, in that box goes that acronym, LSAT. And I'm actually very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for that. Before the LSAT, I'd come to faith in Jesus Christ as a teenager, and I'd gotten really involved all throughout college in just different campus ministries. I was involved in my church. There were times where it felt like I was spending as much time in class as I was spending doing ministry, running around with Young Life, meeting high school kids, doing all kinds of stuff. That was before my box. And then the LSAT happens, and then afterwards, I'm able to look back and go, you know, I think God's been doing other things in me right now. I, I don't feel as bad about bombing the LSAT because I see in hindsight, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right, church? I see that there were other things that God was wanting me to pay attention to. We have the ability to do that. God has given us the incredible gift in our minds and in our hearts as adults to be able to look back and go, there were things leading up to that box, that nodal event, that I should be paying attention to. And there were things afterwards that make more sense for me because I've taken a moment to just reflect on it. And I want to challenge us. I did that. I, I've done the. I, I've uh, penciled in some time in my calendar for this week, and all I put on it was just context. I want to go look at some stuff in the context like this. Put it. Put something in that box. Evaluate what happened other side on it. I think Jesus actually did this at times. The scriptures record him going off into the wilderness to be alone, to pray, to be with the Lord. I wonder if this wasn't something like this. Wasn't one of the things that he did to remind himself, to rehearse the faithfulness of God. He didn't have to do it this way, but he had to remind himself of how good and merciful God was, of those wonderful words that God spoke over him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Church, will we go and remind ourselves of that this week? Will we be different if we remind ourselves of how beloved we are? I sure hope so. Will we be able to go into things like what Jesus went into, into the wilderness, into starvation, into temptation? Will we be able to go into that differently with Eye of the Tiger playing all around us? Yeah, because the Lord did it. And he didn't do things that weren't meant to be an example for us. He always did things that we can teach and that we can learn from. So what is in that box for you, church? What would you put in there as a turning point event? What would it do to look at the context of that event and go, God, what were you doing before? What were you doing after? What are you doing in me now? I believe that God could deepen our faith and call us to higher ground if we would only go back and just look, even for just a minute. So my encouragement is to go and do that this week. So that's context. That helps us now arrive at the second point where we're talking about the quick fix. So turn with me to, Matthew, or to Luke 4, 
And we're going to read a little bit of the text and talk about how each of these temptations from the enemy is a quick fix. I'd never thought about it this way before until I started getting into the text this week. Heard this passage taught so many times, I'm hoping it's encouraging all of us to think about it through the lens of time. The first temptation that Jesus faces is about bread. Can you say bread with me? Bread. Let's read uh, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, you've got to say it arrogantly, right? If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. When I arrived at this church, uh, there was a wonderful woman who was baking our communion bread every single week, or every single time we had communion. How cool is that? We had homemade bread for communion. Do you know how long it takes to make homemade bread? <laughs> it is not an easy process. You cannot microwave bread shockingly. It takes time. The devil is saying to Jesus Christ, you don't have to wait. You have the power. Quick fix. Door dash that bread. Get it in here. What has Jesus been doing before this moment? He's been going without food for 40 days. I'm cranky without food for 40 minutes. So he is in a place where this temptation is strong for him. The devil is saying, you don't got to wait. You can do this. You have the power. You, you don't have to preheat the oven. You don't got to wait for it to leaven. You just have to snap your fingers and there's bread. That's what power is, Jesus. And Jesus says no. And we'll get into how he says no in just a little bit. Next temptation. Look at uh, verse 5 with me. Then the devil led him up somewhere, maybe on top of a mountain, and showed him in an instant, say that with me, church, in an instant, like Netflix on demand, all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give all their glory and all this authority, for it's been given over to me, they're mine, and I give it to anyone I please. Jesus came to proclaim a different kind of kingdom. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God, and all the devil's doing in this moment is saying to him, oh, you're about kingdoms? Let me show you what I can do with kingdoms. Let me show you a supercut. Let me show you as fast as I can possibly show you all the different kingdoms in the earth. Let's do a 360-degree tour of the whole globe. I'll show you castles. I'll show you rulers. I'll show you riches beyond your wildest dreams, Jesus, because I know you care about kingdoms. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. Quick fix. All you got to do in response to this quick thing I've shown you is just do this quick thing for me, right? Quick fix. And Jesus says, no. That's not how his kingdom is going to be built. That's not what his kingdom is even going to look like. It won't look like palaces. It won't look like treasures. It won't look like armies. It'll look like a carpenter. It'll look like a cross. It'll look like broken bread and a shared cup. It's not going to look like that. And he knows that. And the devil thinks he's got him, but he doesn't got him. Then the final temptation toward the end of our passage. Jesus, the devil uh, takes him to Jerusalem. Let me find the verse. I should have marked it. There it is, verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. So the devil takes him to the holiest city in all of Judaism, takes him to the holiest spot in the temple, high up on the pinnacle, and he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. Throw yourself down. How long does it take to do that? A second. Quick fix. How long would it take the angels to come and rescue you? A second. Quick fix. Jesus, I know you want people to know who you are. I know you want your name to get around this part of town. I know you want your own people, the Jewish people, to recognize you as Messiah. Let me show you a quick way to do it. Jump off that temple. Do something spectacular. 
do something that will amaze people for centuries. The angels will come and they'll catch you. It'll be incredible. It'll be like Aladdin's magic carpet. It'll just lift you right up. No problem, right? Quick fix. The people will know your Messiah and they won't ignore you anymore. They will worship you. And what Jesus says to the enemy, what we church can say to the enemy is, it's not that simple. Will you say that with me? It's not that simple. When we face the temptation this week to do a quick fix, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. How does this hit home for you, church? When the enemy says, forget your power, forget your stuff, here's what I got for you, it's quick, it's easy, come look to me. We might think that we know better, but oftentimes we don't. Think of a challenge that you faced recently. For me, one of my kids was just really challenging me earlier this fall. We had a bunch of different transitions in our families, different schools, different kinds of things, and just one kid in this moment was really getting under my skin, and I would imagine I was getting under this kid's skin too. So what was my temptation? My temptation was to try to quick fix it. Power through, nose to the grindstone. Nose to the grindstone. Just keep doing what I was doing. Don't reevaluate. He needs to change. I don't need to change. He needs to change. I don't need to change. What's the deal here? The quick fix didn't work. It doesn't work. Not with people. Not with things that matter. Things that matter always take time, don't they? The gospel-shaped response to a kid getting under my skin is to start praying for that kid. The gospel-shaped response to your annoying coworker is to pray for your annoying coworker. The gospel-shaped response to any level of frustration we have in any kind of relationship anywhere is, God, soften my heart for this person. I don't know their story. I don't know everything that's going on in them. You do. How would you have me relate? How would you have me understand? How would you have me empathize? Maybe you're going through a hard season in your marriage. It's kind of a cold war. Poor communication. You're not talking to each other. You're not listening. What's the temptation? Get out. Go somewhere else. Swipe right. Get on Tinder. 30% of people on Tinder are married. That's the quick fix. What's the gospel calling in a tough season in your marriage? Get thee to a counselor. Go sit and do the hard work. Go talk. Go try to work it out. Don't bail out. Sit in there and do the work. Is it going to take a long time? Uh-huh. Might it be costly? Yes. Will it be better for you and for your family than a quick fix? Mm-hmm. It will. If you're lonely, how many different apps can we name to deal with loneliness? How many different quick fixes are right there at our thumbs? But we know the answer to loneliness. At least we know one answer to it. It's the companionship of Christ. It's giving of yourself. It's being in community. It's belonging to others. So putting their needs before yourself. It doesn't address all the problems of loneliness, but it is a start, and it is not a quick fix. If you're lonely, do not look for the quick fix. Your homework, church, my homework, is when we face the opportunity to jump onto a quick fix this week, we're going to say no. Or we're at least going to pause. Remember, because what's our thesis? Pause, then trust. We're going to pause, take a deep breath, Go, God, is this, quick, is this quick fix a thing like we talked about on Sunday, or do I just need to do this? Because maybe you just need to do it, right? Maybe you just need to microwave that popcorn. That's fine. That's a quick fix. Good snack. That ain't going to kill you, unless you have high cholesterol, but that's a whole other thing. Say no to a quick fix this week. If you're in a pattern with quick fixes, get out of that pattern. Do something different. That's the quick fix, and Jesus shows us an amazing way through that. So, We've talked about context, we've talked about 
a quick fix. Now we're going to talk about kind of what's the season that we are in as a church together. What are the things that we need to be considering as the people of God? I'm going to offer kind of two different uh, pathways through this. One is reflect and one is replace. Okay, so there's been a lot of reflective questions today. I recognize that, but I think it's healthy and important for us. So reflect goes back to the kind of the context piece. We're going to pause and then trust. We're going to specifically look at the context in front of us. We talked about this earlier. Fill in your box. What happened before? What happened after? Ask God to help make some sense of this for you. I recognize that that doesn't always work that way. Let's say you're in a season right now where you absolutely feel like you're in the wilderness. You are toiling away at work. You're trying to figure stuff out in your marriage. You're trying to get things right with your kids or with your grandkids. There may not be an after yet. Does that make sense? You may be in that box, in that turning point moment right now, but you can't see the after. You can't see what's coming next. That's okay. We, we don't have the privilege of seeing what's next. You can still reflect on what happened before, can't you? You can still ask those questions like, man, what was I doing before I had that blow up with my boss? What was going on that day? Where am I now? Okay, what are the things, what are some steps I could take? You can envision a future that is Christ-honoring and good. You can do that. Maybe you're through a season in the wilderness. Maybe that turning point event that you would put in a box, that was a couple years ago. Maybe for me, it was like a long time ago. The LSAT was not last week. Go back and reflect on that. Something was happening to you before, something happened to you after. As you look at those three pieces, before, after, the box that's in the middle, what is God teaching you in that moment? And may I challenge you to share that with somebody. Because the things that happen to us don't just happen for us, do they? Someone can benefit from the stories you can tell. Someone can hear a part of your story about how God's been faithful to you and go, oh, I so needed to hear that. Like Josh sharing his story about the encouragement through the scriptures. Didn't, I mean, so many of us just went, oh, I so needed to hear that. Would you do that with your story this week as you reflect on it? And maybe you are one of those blessed and highly favored folks that you are just in a really good place right now. Praise God. How'd you get there? What was happening before this really good season? What do you want to do after this season comes to an end? How do you anticipate endeavoring toward Christ's faithfulness once this season of goodness comes to an end? Because friends, it will come to an end. Our good seasons will not always last. And that ain't even the goal. The goal is being faithful. The goal is seeing how Christ is faithful to us. So that's opportunities to reflect, opportunity to replace. This is real simple. This is my own conviction. How many times do we use phrases like, this is taking too long? Say it with me, church. This is taking too long. How about another one? This is a waste of my time. This is taking too long. This is a waste of my time. You say it, you think it. It doesn't just happen when we go get our driver's licenses renewed, does it? It happens all the time. Let us be a people who replace those phrases in the week ahead. A couple of suggestions. What if we tried replacing it with, you know, this isn't so simple. Imagine you're standing there, you're waiting on your driver's license to get renewed, and you're watching that clerk up there, and they're working hard, and they got a million people waiting on them, and everybody's bent out of shape because it's driver's licenses, and we're always bent out of shape around driver's licenses. But you could look at that person who's working hard, working for our government, a public servant, and you can look at their job and say, it's not so simple. They got a hard job. They got a lot of people that are counting on them. Rather than saying, this is a waste of my time, this is hard. 
I recognize that that person in front of me has a hard job right now. That's a possibility for replacement. Another possibility for replacement, God, what am I missing? I'm frustrated. I feel like my time is being wasted. I've been on hold forever. What am I missing right now? Maybe being on hold is an opportunity to pray for someone while some beautiful music plays in the background. What if we looked at it differently? What if all you need to do the next time you're facing something challenging, rather than look for a quick fix, rather than look for a way through it, is to replace that instinct with something like, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. It ain't in the Bible, but it's still good. This too shall pass. Whatever it is that you're facing, could you layer that over that situation? Could you hold that out before God? Yes, we could. Do we need to? Yes, because does our world need more patient people or less patient people? A lot more. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it. This is just good encouragement. You want a verse to maybe read through devotionally this week, to apply it to your life, maybe hang it on your bathroom mirror. This is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Think about time as you hear these words. Paul writes, not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's our pathway toward a whole lot more peace than if we just keep trying to do the nose to the grindstone, if we just keep trying to do it our way to know the peace of Christ, to apply that to our understanding of time. One final thought about time. The last verse in our passage today has a very scary phrase. This is verse 13. And it's almost like the enemy's sort of (laughs) moment. Verse 13 of chapter 4. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. That phrase, until an opportune time, is kind of scary. Because it implies that there will be more time spent in temptation. It implies that the enemy might try a different angle, and maybe he'll succeed. He won't succeed against Jesus, but maybe he'll trip us up. Maybe he'll bring us to a place of deep discouragement. Because he's going to wait until that opportune time. Friends, I think he's showing us his cards right here. I think he's saying, I'm going to try to come and get you again. Well, we know his strategy. We know what he's going to try to do. We know he's not going to give up. So the next time that you face something where you're going, this feels like some part of the enemy is trying to use this as an opportune time, you can name that. You can ask God to enter right into it. Even if it just feels like that in the moment, God, I don't really know what's going on here, but this feels like that whole until an opportune time thing, would you come and rescue me? And I would argue that one of the best ways to prepare ourselves for those moments is to just name them and get them out. So you may have noticed that when you walked in, there were two easels at the back of the room. We've done this type of response before here at Bethany, and I want to encourage you to consider taking part in it. On the easel to my right, your left, is an opportunity to write down some temptations that we face, some quick fixes. And we've got a pad, uh, we've got pads of post-it notes and markers over there. And I just want to encourage us, during the final song, during our prayer time, after worship even, go over there and write down a temptation that you are facing, specifically one that you know is not going to get fixed quick. Does that make sense? Like something that you know you're being tempted with, something you're struggling with, and you know the solution is it's just going to take a while. 
what are you tempted to be solving with a quick fix? You can write that down over there on that easel to my right, to your left. On the other side of the room, you could write down the exact same thing. Because the other side of the room, the heading for that easel is, Jesus, today I trust you with fill in the blank. So if you write over there, my temptation is, I want to bail out on my marriage, you can write the same thing over there. Jesus, I trust you with my marriage. If you write over there, Jesus, my temptation is to quit my job and go find a new one. I'm getting emails from LinkedIn all the time. It's time to go. You can write that down. And over there on that easel, you can write down my career, my vocation. I would encourage you even to write it down a third time, take home a third post-it note, and pray for that temptation for the rest of Lent. Pray for it daily. Because I didn't get through any of the hard seasons I've faced by sort of praying about things or occasionally remembering to pray about things. I was, by the faithfulness of God, able to pray consistently. And if you're like me, if you don't write it down, it doesn't happen. So write down something on those post-it notes. Stick it up there. You don't have to put your name next to it. Be as anonymous as you want to be. And know that as you do so, just by writing it down and naming it, you are taking away the enemy's power. Because he can't hold that over you if you've named it. He can still try to use it and wait for the opportune time, but he won't surprise you with it. He won't get the first jump. He won't make the first move because you'll have named it. So church, go and be bold. Write it down. You, go write, you don't want to go write it up down on, on the boards. That's fine. Write it down somewhere. A temptation you're facing, something you're desiring to trust Christ with more. That's our calling. That's our opportunity today. I invite you to step in and be a part of that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're grateful for this story. It's not a story. It's real life. Where Jesus faced real challenges and temptations. And he didn't just face it to get through it himself. He faced it so that your church could be encouraged over and over and over again by the power of his witness. So God, as we uh, turn now to worshiping you now through using our voices, would you also use our bodies and our minds? If you were leading us to go and write something down, please let us go do that. Or if we just need to sit and hold out to you that thing that's in our box, that nodal event, whatever it is, would you be with us as we step into that sacred reflection? This season of Lent is all about journeying toward the cross. And we want to do that together. We want to do that in community. So as a community, lead us now into this time of response where we can grow more deeply in our love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.